So this podcast was inspired by a reply that I got from the managing editor of a publication, which I probably won't name. Uh, my pub, public, my podcast does not have a lot of circulation, but I don't feel I don't feel like airing a pu- private correspondence between me and the managing editor of said publication on it. Nonetheless, uh, it was fine, but I'm going to get to why I think there's a discussion here because, okay, so I sent him a piece on the Napoleonic turn of the 21st century, which big business, big science, big data, right? And the hook, which I got actually from a friend of mine as a suggestion, I thought was a very good hook. It's the 25th anniversary of Freeman Dyson, the famous, famed scientist, physicist, theoretical physicist and author, uh, he wrote a book called Imagine Worlds in 1997. It's 25 years since Imagine Worlds. And it's a nice hook because, uh, you know, if you're talking about futurism, he was talking about futurism 25 years ago. It's a nice time to revisit that. And roughly, um, I think I can say these things. Um, I sent the book to the Atlantic and they, they passed on it fairly cursorily. Although I got a response, and in this, in this world, <laughs> just getting a response is actually, it means that he still, cons- like the person who shall remain nameless, still considers me uh, <laughs> like having a, as having enough value, important enough, as it were, to actually respond, right? Like if, you're, if, you, <laughs> if you send, like if you cold send something to a senior editor at The Atlantic, there's a very, 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 very high likelihood you will never hear anything back because they don't know you uh, and uh, they're not going to read your piece. Uh, and so since they didn't read it at all, uh, you're not going to get a response. You might get like something like, thank you for your submission. You should hear back from us within, you know, 400 years. Uh, and if you don't, then assume that we didn't publish it. And then maybe like a little byline in the um, automated response that says, you might as well just assume we didn't publish it right now. Point being like, okay, that's fine. Uh, the, so the comment was that uh, he didn't have the bandwidth to get into it. Okay, I don't know what that means other than it's a no. It went to the Los, then I sent it to the Los Angeles Review of Books. And they were very glowing, had very glowing language to describe the piece. But there was apparently some dissension about whether they should publish it or not. So it didn't get published there. Then it went to Nautilus. And I think that went sort of, uh, that just went into the dead left. No, I mean, I got a response. Actually, no, I actually never got a response from Nautilus at all. And then uh, it went to Wired. I got a response from Wired. And the response was, we don't do 25th anniversary pieces, but I hope you'll continue to pitch us. Um, 
So like at this point, at this point, I'm, I'm getting a little frustrated. It's not necessarily the best thing I've ever written, but you know, I actually got, there were, uh, there were more than, there was more than one person who actually said really, really good things about it. As in, it, it really was a really solid contribution. It really was really well-written, right? So, I mean, there were certainly fans of it, but not the right ones. And so finally it ended up with the new Atlantis and then their managing editor took it and basically came back and, um, you know, I mean, it, it's fine. Like these rejection letters are actually, you should actually sort of respect, re, you should expect them more or less as a writer. It's kind of, even if you're really a pretty well-known writer, it's not, there's just, there's no turn the key way of getting published, right? Like it's just, they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of readers. You know, some of these places that I send it to, they have millions of readers. Like I think the Atlantic has 40 million unique visitors to their website every month or something like that. You know, I don't know how many, I don't know what their circulation is, but it's damn big. And so, right, you know, like even if, even if you're known, even if you're personal friends with the editor, you're not necessarily going to get on their pages just because you wrote something. It just doesn't work that way. But he said, in effect, uh, you know, the, the, the piece was about how the um, 21st century became, it started out as small and bottom-up ideas. It, that's actually, if you go back and read, which I actually did, it's really fun to do this, um, it, like you think you kind of like it. So if you're old enough to remember the turn of the century, the year 2000, which, you know, most of most <laughs> the millennials now barely know. And the, the generation, the, the Zoomers definitely know they're not even born yet. Right. Um, or they were born right around that time. But the Gen Xers like me and then the baby boomers, obviously, we all remember the turn of the century, right? That's kind of cool, new century. And so if you go back, but what I noticed was I had this vague kind of feeling that I knew what the zeitgeist was, what was being said and discussed in um, around the year 2000. But and generally speaking, I was right. 22, 22 years later, I, I did actually have roughly the right idea. But go back and read the literature, right? Just, you know, like, so just to eliminate this, this possibility of you having cognitive, you know, not cognitive, but having whatever bias you have, right? Like misremembering it in very, various ways, which is, you know, eminently possible, right? But just go back and read the stuff and see. And so I read this book, The New Rules for the New uh, Century, by uh, the, the co-founder, Kevin Kelly, of, the, uh, of Wired Magazine. And it was published in 1998 and new rules for the new economy. Sorry. And so if you go back and read that, like, it's really interesting how, and Kevin Kelly is, I actually, I've always I've kind of always found Kevin Kelly interesting. And I, it's not, it's not an obvious match. It's not an obvious marriage, <laughs> me and Kevin Kelly, because he's, he's very much, or certainly has been you know, a, a real kind of, California type futurist, meaning, you know, gadgets are the future and right. I mean, he co-founded Wired Magazine. So that's not, 
for anybody who knows what I'm thinking about and writing about, that's not an obvious fit for me, but I've always found him pretty, like a fascinating figure, basically. Um, and I've always found that he's had some really insightful things to say. So if, but you go back to 1998 and it was just obvious that the web, there was no way to predict the web. So there's no way to blame his own failure or his, you know, his insight into what the new century was going to bring because there really was, it was, it was really kind of impossible to predict if you're standing from the vantage point of 1998. But what, you know, but it was, it's just so obvious that the key move of the new century, no one, not, no, the futurist, nobody saw it coming. It was really, really obvious. So Kevin Kelly said, you know, the future is not really PCs. Remember when everybody had a desktop computer and you would log into it, right? And CD-ROMs and all that, you know. And he's like, that's not really the future. The future is really what we would now call the Internet of Things, right? That's actually, and he pretty much nailed that. He said, everything's just going to be smaller and miniaturized, and it's going to be devices, and there's going to be computational power on all these devices. It's funny that he didn't see the cell phone, though. He didn't predict the iPhone. He didn't, right? He just predicted, like, that we would wear stuff, like, the, the stuff that's sort of less prevalent, but certainly certainly is part of the, the our world today, but less prevalent, like what's the most prevalent thing is everybody's got a smartphone. And somehow that wasn't obvious in 1998, like it's weird. But he, he predicted that and he predicted basically that we were going to be connected by networks and it was going to unleash just waves of, of crashing, you know, creativity and intellect, right? Like, so there was just going to be this just bottom up, you know, power to the people idea and... And like, that's what we were headed for. Like, that's what was going to, what was happening that, you know, like if you would like, if, 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 and very much by the way, the end of IBM, the end of big corporations, the end of all this kind of way of doing business, because these networks were going to generate new business models and new ways of productizing and new all, you know, and everything was going, you know, everything was going to be kind of made accessible to the common Joe, right? Like just go, go, like it, go read new rules for the new economy. And just, like, you don't take, if you don't take, you know, if you don't believe me, go read it. And so, and you know, and he wasn't alone. I mean, this was really, this was really the thought about that by 1998, 1999, people knew the internet was going to be a big thing. Um, you know, this was before Google was a big thing, but you already had Alta Vista, you already had Excite, you had all these, you had you already had search that were that you know search was already getting the companies were already getting valued at pretty big valuations, and then you had portal sites like Yahoo who were buying them up, buying up the search companies, and they were really packaging search with the portal idea, um, you know, and that whole Web 1.0 thing though was really off and running by '98, uh, '99, um, so. I wrote an article about how that happened, you know, but the thing that was missed was that the, you know, IBM came back in the form of a search company and, and the idea of a social network was kind of implicit in what Kevin Kelly said, you know, but you know, cause networks, networks, right. So social networking, 
But the social network came back as, you know, Chrysler, right? Like this huge corporation. I mean, Facebook is just gargantuan in terms of like the number of customers it has certainly is unprecedented, a couple billion, right? Um, and, you know, even employees like, you know, and, you know, web companies are notorious for having a relatively small ratio of employees to, uh, to, pro to, uh, to customers, right? So, you know, and that's certainly true. I mean, if you have 2 billion customers, you know, you're going to have to have a lot of employees to equal a General Motors of the 50s. But, you know, even Facebook has tens and thousands, tens and tens of thousands of employees, right? And all over the world. And they employ people all over the world. Some of those people are just doing, you know, just ferreting out, you know, hate speech or something. But there's thousands of people everywhere. Uh, or not everywhere, but there's, you know, there's, there's, it's a big, it's a big corporation, a big operation. So of course, same with Google. And like somehow that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. We were just going to have all these really small, super creative companies. You know, all, all of a sudden the rules of business had just been redefined, right? And it's like, no, you know, and in fact, the, the, not only did we get a, a wave of businesses that, uh, had this curious ability to centralize so much data that they became almost like governments. And in fact, you know, if you read a lot of the criticism of big tech, it's like, look, they're just almost playing the role of governments because they've, they're such a centralized, huge repository of, of data about people. Right. So that's a, <laughs> that's a Napoleonic idea, right? That's not a, ground up Tol Tolstoyan idea at all, quite the opposite, uh, and it wasn't predicted. So that's what I wrote about. And I included um, a section about big science because, um, you know, science, science was arguably, if we had all these networks, remember the idea that we're going to have all these citizen bloggers, but we'd also have all these citizen scientists that would be running around forming little groups and solving problems. And it's like, well, yeah, but not really because all the science that the, the science that really defines the 21st century and really makes the news is all super, super mega funded. Uh, you know what uh, Norbert Wiener used to call mega, mega science. And, you know, all that stuff is super funded and it's also got a lot of corporate interests behind it, right? So a lot of that science, a lot of the science that we think of in turn, you know, I mean, it depends on what type of science, of course, but, you know, Google, Google and Facebook, they fund a lot of uh, research into different areas of science. Some of it's, you know, neuroscience and brain research and to, to all kinds of different things, psychology, psychological research and so on, even probably some some stuff that we just don't even know about, but that used to be performed in, in academic labs and so on. And um, so, you know, science it's also kind of didn't show this 20th century zeitgeist. It didn't bear that out. It showed rather this turn towards big centralized Bureau of Statistics type, you know, super funded type efforts where you, the agenda has pretty much already been set and then you kind of turn the crank and you hope to get the results that you're already looking for. And so that's not like, that's very much not, if you look at like the turn of the last century, for instance, that was very, 
that was very much the tinker, the, the, you know, the triumph of the tinkerers, right? So, um, you know, Einstein and Max Born and what's his name? Was it uh, Max Born? Max Planck and Born was the other one. Um, and, you know, Heisenberg and all these guys, they were all working, you know, all over the world on, on disparate problems. And then all those problems started to come together. And it wasn't like, you know, I, you know, Einstein wasn't mega funded to come up with relativity. This is an important point, right? Like he wasn't funded at all, actually. Um, you know, except for, I, you know, he must have had some like small amount, but like these really, like at that point, there was this real frontier, wild, wild west type of frontier for the quantum mechanics and, um, relativity and quantum mechanics, right? So the very big and the very small were all like not hyper-funded. And you had a, just a, a, a ragtag bunch of geniuses, really. Um, and if you don't believe that, go back and read about what it was like in 1900 when they, you know, relativity, special relativity was 1905, black body radiation. And, now, all that stuff was really, was really from what really was from the ground up. And it was really centered on the scientists rather than the organizations that they were supporting and so on. And so you really did, so this century really didn't turn out like that at all. We skipped all that in the 21st century and basically went right to the 1950s within five years. We, we, we had big, you know, we had big, big corporations and, um, you know, the big, like I wrote about in my book, that neuroscience became this race to who could buy the, the most supercomputers, Right. Like that was the whole thing. Right. Like, oh, we have like these blue jean supercomputers. We're going to figure out the brain faster than you. It's unclear how that was ever supposed to work, actually. <laughs> right. Like, so what if you have inadequate theory about the, you know, how neurons interact? Right. Which we do. Actually, it gets really complicated. And I'm not a neuroscientist, but I wrote for a, a publication over in Europe once. and I had to do a ton of research on that. And I actually forget the core. There's there's a core uh, theorem, like it's a, it's like a, it's, it's, it's a, basically it's described mathematically on, um, on how neurons like combine together to get things done. And I can't remember what it is, but there's a big, there's a big gap in it where we don't know. And it's like, you know, if you're writing it on a chalkboard, you have to write like a big question mark right in the middle of it and say, we don't know how that happens actually. And so we don't even have a full theory yet. And, but we took that, my point is for the big, for both the brain initiative, the Obama uh, administration did the brain initiative that was mega funded. I think it was a hundred million to start and then much more to follow up. And for the human brain project over in the EU, which was, I think that was a hundred, I think it was a billion euro or something. I think, yeah, I mean, it was, it was huge. That was a billion euro. Um, but for both of those projects, they, they basically assumed that we have an adequate theoretical basis for the investigation and then moved forward with just computing stuff, right? So if you take predictive neuroscience, that was the, that was the buzzword, predictive neuroscience, is basically just take existing theory and... and um, See if you can use it to predict the behavior of neurons in circuits and meso circuits and all this stuff, right? 
And it turns out that, yeah, like they get, I think they had like, you know, they do a, they train on something that's known, some set of circuitry in the brain that's known, and then they apply it to some unknowns. And then they go ahead and figure out like how, how much did the model conform to the actual, you know, the actual neurons that you have, like in some, in a solution, you know, with the microscope, like how, how did the model actually predict what we really actually see right there in the brain? And it was like, oh, 80% of it. And it's like, well, that sounds great until you realize that two out of every 10 connections is wrong. Well, how are you going to scale that up? I mean, that's a level of error that would make Frankenstein, you know, the Frankenstein project look like, you know, there's some like, you know, like even if you, if it had like metal, you know, pikes, you know, how Frankenstein had the metal rods sticking out of his temples, like that, you know, that'd be less than two out of 10. You know, if you're building up a brain and 20% of it is wrong, you'd end up with something not like a human brain. Like, like that's, that's not going to work, you know, uh, you end up with something like an oak tree. I don't know, but it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a human brain. That's for sure. Well, it wouldn't be an oak tree because they don't, you know. But um, anyway, the point being that you know those projects all failed, but they were huge, big science projects, and that was kind of the zeitgeist of the has been for the first twenty two years of the of the uh, of the twenty first century. So I wrote about it, and uh, the editor came back and said, well, it's too short for the stuff that we write, and it kind of jumps around a lot. Um, but you said some interesting thing about artificial intelligence. I also wrote about how artificial intelligence became, AI became big data AI, which is quite obvious. That's my field, ostensibly. Well, in reality, it is as well. Is well that's how I, that's why my paycheck comes by doing AI work. Um, and, um, and so I wrote about that. There was a, there were a couple of paragraphs in the piece that's, you know, talked about how AI became big data AI. And now you can't even do, you know, you can't, you can't do the kind of AI that's going to sort you know, quote unquote, make a difference. Really, you have to have a, you know, a cloud server to, to train the model and, and you have to have access to massive data sets and or, you know, you can pay to use a foundational model like GPT-3. There are licensing options for that and so on. But to train GPT-3 was a big, big deal that took a lot of funding and so on. And so AI has also become, you know, big, <laughs> big data AI. He wanted me to talk about that. Is there such a thing? And this is the whole point of the podcast is there such a thing as small data AI? And can you write about how that might look? And, and is there such a thing as the Tolstoyan picture of AI rather than the, the Napoleonic one? And, um, you know, so that's my jumping off point for talking about something interesting. And I think, like, for me and my colleagues, like, looking back at the last 20 years or 22 years that I've been doing this, it in retrospect... I think it was kind of inevitable. There was this kind of inexorability to AI failing to solve problems by um, clever algorithms and 
you know, slick knowledge representation techniques. And, it, you know, for these huge class of problems like speech recognition, voice or voice uh, image recognition, voice recognition, um, all kinds of problems in NLP with text summarization, text generation, text interpretation, and so on. All those problems actually just benefit from more and more data because the, the, the algorithms that actually show the most promise in the real-world applications, real-world environments, right, are actually these data-intensive algorithms that basically they don't saturate until you have I mean, you know, they don't, they don't saturate until they have millions of examples, basically, like neural networks. And there's a whole class of graphical, um, graphical algorithms like, you know, uh, support, not graphical. They're not, those are, uh, let's see, uh, uh, and, um, what is it, Max, maximum entropy, conditional random fields. The Bayesian, the, Bay, the class of family of Bayes algorithms, naive Bayes. Like all those, those kind of algorithms actually benefit. Now, naive Bayes is nice. I mean, it doesn't take a ton of data typically, but it depends on the problem. But, you know, the, the, the support vector machines is another um, pretty much ignored type of learning algorithm now. But it, those also took huge amounts of data. They're called, excuse me, wide margin classifiers. Um, so, you know, across the board, all the algorithms that really showed the most performance gains, you know, that really showed the best results were the ones who really required massive volumes of data to, to be optimal, right? To get the best, what we call F measure, which is really just, it's an accuracy, right? And so, and if you look back, you can say, look, you know, the field tried pretty much everything else for... 50, 60 years before it became, there was a business case and a technical case to use what we used to call empirical methods, to use those machine learning algorithms that I was just talking about. We had a business case because, you know, people are all on the web. And so we need to like be able to handle large volumes of web data, which is what? Text and image data. And then the, you know, the technical case was like, well, we have all this text image and image data now, so we can train these and they're going to work. And so, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're breaking records in the field on these classes of problems that, re, that uh, are, you can use these um, machine learning methods on. Um, <clears throat> and looking back on that, it seems like that was kind of inevitable. Once we had enough data, we were going to beat the other approaches because the other approaches really are kind of brittle, like pun, you know, people, scientists and Researchers back in the 80s would say these machine learning methods are brittle and they don't understand. How could they? They're just statistical, right? How could they understand anything conceptual because they're statistical? That's all true. But what sort of went unstated is, is like, yeah, but when you give them 10x or 100x or 1000x the amount of data, they still, even though they don't understand anything, they still beat the small data AI approaches, Right. And so, you know, in the email, you know, to the editor, I said, I explained this in a little bit more succinct format. I said, look, I mean, basically the, you know, like whether or not there's a small data AI, all the evidence suggests that it would just be a crappier Alexa and a, you know, a crappier self-driving car. Like this is the best we have. And it's kind of unfortunate because we do have this Napoleonic problem with this. It's pretty bad on the environment. Um, 
it kind of tends to favor people with big deep pockets because you know data is expensive. People own data. It seemed if I, everybody thought data was going to be all free, but it doesn't really work that way. Um, whoever has the most data basically has the best AI, and the, whoever has the most data is probably going to be the richest person or group or institution. I mean, that's kind of how it works. And so it's kind of unfortunate, but like saying, is there a small data AI, you know, like, like I said, we already kind of know that small data AI didn't work. We already kind of, the jury's kind of in. And the other thing is, even if it's not in, there's really no way to tell. That's like saying, can you, can you, like, if you knew what small data AI was, from this vantage point here, you, I could just say it. If I knew what it was going to look like, it's kind of like Popper's or, uh, you know, Popper made the point once uh, that if you were going to um, invent, nobody can predict when the wheel was going to be invented before it was invented. Because if you could predict when the wheel was going to be invented, you could invent the wheel. <laughs> because the only way you can predict, predict when there's going to be a radical conceptual innovation is to actually have some kind of blueprint for it because that's going to give you the confidence that it's going to happen, right? Otherwise, you know, you just, I don't know. Like, you know, it's like, when will cold fusion happen? It's like, well, until you have more traction on cold fusion, you really can't put a number on it. Um, and so, but like, so it's like, yeah, well, how, how could I say anything interesting about the future of small data AI? Because we don't have a blueprint for it. We actually just have no clue how to do that. How do, how do you do small data AI so that it, it equals the performance of the big data systems that we have now? It's like, well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And if we did know, we would do it, right? So what kind of piece am I going to write? Like, what piece is that going to be? I'm not trying to sound petulant. I'm saying that's not a good basis to, to write something. Now, a more charitable interpretation of what he was saying and to expand it beyond just that particular exchange because it's an interesting idea in its own right. The more charitable interpretation would be something like, what are the conditions of a society that can best make pro the right kinds of progress in artificial intelligence. And I think there you have an argument for this bottom-up Tolstoyan kind of tinkering process where we ought to be putting research and development dollars into a lot of different projects, a lot of different things. I mean, we could be trying different mathematical algorithms where there's no, there's no incentive to fund that research right now because there's no obvious short-term payout. Right, like, well, we don't know if that thing's going to work or not, or we don't know what's going to happen if we try this new evolutionary algorithm approach. Right, it seems like we might be wasting a lot of time. Right, or we might not. Right, but if we if we if we spent if we expanded the circle so that we're not just worried about that kind of short term delivery, um, you know, we'd have a better chance of finding something interesting. And it could be, I could be wrong that maybe there is some small data AI that we haven't thought of yet. But the only way, my point being, the only way we're really going to find it is to have a kind of culture that values looking for things like that. And uh, right now, you know, it's not, we don't, there's not a lot of incentive for people to look for stuff outside, you know, outside of the narrowly defined, you know, you know current mindset in, in AI which is, you know, keep using these huge models to solve these problems. And when you 
discover that you have reached some kind of uh, limit with what, whatever task you're trying to solve. You know, you can always <laughs> try and use more data and get a bigger model, right? And so, um, I mean, and so I guess I'll just end with this. There's a there's a complication here, and I don't want to get this too technical, but I'll, you know, there is. There is room for ingenuity, even if you're using big data AI, because like for, if you take a conversational system, for instance, well, you know, sometimes you could you can try to get uh, plausible, intelligible, accurate responses just by training it on millions of que- or you know more like tens of thousands of question answer pairs or something, right? But if you have more information about what's going on, so if you run it through a dependency parser, for instance, and then you include dependency parsing as a feature, right? And so even if you have some small ontological model where you talk about, is that an implied action or what's the, what's the meaning, you know, like what's the likely um, uh, effect of this type of a question or they ask, is it informational? Is it action-based, right? So there's ways that you can actually use, you know, different, types of different subfields of AI, knowledge representation and reasoning and linguistic NLP and so on. You can add those in to make a bigger system that's more powerful, even without just brute forcing more, more data. And so, you know, there's ways that we can, we can do that. And so, by the way, I, I guess I'll end this podcast with this. The only thing I can see, and again, keep Popper's point in mind that I can't invent small data AI if it's a radical conceptual innovation, as I believe it is, I can't, I'm not going to be able, me nor any of my colleagues or anyone is going to be able to invent it until somebody discovers it, basically. So I don't know. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it sure looks like it's going to be a hard nut to crack. But uh, the fallback is not that depressing. It's that we just keep looking for interesting hybrid systems, different ways of using the different aspects of AI that we've developed and investigated over the years to build more and more powerful systems. And I think that that certainly is underway. Um, You know, the only problem is, is that those hybrid systems are going to tend to be still at the end of the day, big data systems, right? They're still going to have that feature. So, yeah, 